Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by my friend Flag Taylor for a conversation about our mutual friend and indeed the occasion of our meeting, Peter Lawler, who passed three years ago. We're recording this on the eve of the anniversary of his birth, July 30, and we will be talking about his teaching and about his thought. I started five years ago or so, it was at Postmodern Conservative. Flag, you, everybody was already there. I was the last man joining the ship, and I was a young man, the kind of young man that Peter always helped lovingly, and I didn't ask myself very much either whether I deserved to be included among more distinguished academics or how it even happened that Postmodern Conservative became a going concern at First Things and then at National Review where I joined it. I just treasure the fact that you and Carl and John and Pete and everybody that's been part of this podcast and part of the foundation since was there to welcome me and to include me as one of you, even though I'm not a credentialed academic, I'm a film critic, and nevertheless, you have been wonderfully generous and helpful over the years. I should tell our audience, this is our 17th conversation over the last three-something years. It's been now three years in the summer, and so it was with everybody else. Indeed, to a large extent, our podcasts here at the American Cinema Foundation were a way of prolonging our experience at Postmodern Conservative and bringing it to a new audience in a new medium. So I am looking forward, now that I am inaugurating this second series of the podcast in memory of Peter Lawler, to talk about postmodern conservative and about what it is that we're doing here and what it is that you are doing as a scholar, since I have learned so much about totalitarianism specifically, but other things as well, from you. Flag, it's great to talk to you again. It's been a while since we dealt with Mr. Jones and Agnieszka Holland and the cinema of memory in Europe. Tell me, how are you doing and how you met Peter in the first place? Thanks, Titus. Yes, it's great to be back, as always, to your podcast. And I've really enjoyed listening to the other episodes that you've done about Peter Lawler. He played a really big role in my education and development as a teacher and a scholar. So it's great to get to talk about him. I remember when you started to become associated with Postmodern Conservative, I think we already knew each other a little bit through Ricochet, and I'd known Peter for many, many years, as I'll talk about in a minute, but it was funny. I remembered one detail about that time. I think I came on to Postmodern Conservative sometime in 2014, so it must have been a year or so later that you came on, and I remember getting an email from Peter saying, I know you know Titus. He sent me something. I don't have time to edit it right now. Can you take a look at this? And it was... I remember it was an essay on Louis C.K.'s TV show, The Name Escapes Me. So I I remember editing that for Peter, which is sort of funny memory I had. Yeah, we met for the first time with a common friend at a party in upstate New York, and you brought a lovely one of your wonderful pies. Yeah. The wonderful (laughs) lattice. I I remember that. And you gave me your book, Totalitarianism on Screen, which turned out to be prescient since so much of our work together in podcasting has been on totalitarianism in Europe and great cinema. It has stirred. I remember that first couple of essays I was writing about Louis C.K. I was proud that Peter thought well of me, and I pitched it because I knew he himself wrote occasionally about Louis C.K. He called him the comic philosopher of America. Yeah. That was, of course, before Louis got cancelled. 
And I think that Peter would still hold on to his opinions, as I have of mine, that he really is a profound thinker on our drama, on the drama of individualism bereft of limits, anchors, and purposes. I think that's why he was cancelled, actually. It was not because he was imperfect or his human failures. It's that he told truths that we need to hear and don't want to hear. So eventually, yeah, it got to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was when we first started blogging together. And then Peter, I looked back to when I joined Postmodern Conservative and Peter blogged about me joining and he wrote in his blog then that he, he says it took a substantial signing bonus, a multi-year contract, a huge golden parachute and certain other perks I'm ashamed to mention. But I'm glad we were able to get Flag Taylor to join, join us at Postmodern Conservative. So I wish all that were true, but sadly, none of it was true. I first met Peter when I was in graduate school at Fordham University in the Bronx. I was studying with Mary and David Nichols, and Mary and David are very good at connecting their graduate students to other academics and thinkers. One such academic is a guy named Dan Mahoney, who you interviewed about Peter. Dan and Peter had been friends, I think, back then for already a decade. And Dan used to come to Fordham to visit the Nichols, and I started to become friends with him. And through Dan, I met Peter. And he, you know, he just struck me as a really interesting, quirky, you know, someone who had this range of interests that was very, I guess he was just hard to pin down for me at first, right? Who is this guy who seems to watch USA Network television series with seriousness? And he's this brilliant Tocqueville scholar, also interested in Solzhenitsyn. So I, I was just struck by who is this guy and how does he put all these things together? Turned out I got to see him somewhat regularly, I guess, in the early 2000s. 2001, 2002, my wife, Natalie, got a job at Oglethorpe University in Atlanta just for a year. And back then, Peter used to work with a guy named Joe Knippenberg, who's still at Oglethorpe. They used to have this joint conference on a particular theme, and I think it used to go back and forth between being held at Oglethorpe and Barrie. And Peter asked me to um, be a commenter on one of the papers given at that conference in 2001. I think it was by Jim Caesar. You know, Peter was great at trying to give aspiring graduate students and academics, you know, a shot at hanging with the big hitters like Jim Caesar. So I was really humbled to be part of that conference. And then in the spring of that year, Peter invited me up to Barry to give a lecture. And so I talked about Lincoln being a kind of Tocquevillian thinker. I was, you know, obviously a little bit terrified of saying something about Tocqueville that Peter would find horribly wrong. And so I, was, I remember being really, really super nervous. But, you know, he was very gracious and had plenty of eager undergraduates in the audience. He was treated, this was true if you saw him on campus at Barry and also at these Oglethorpe Barry conferences, he was treated, and this is not really an overstatement, as a kind of rock star. When he came on the stage, you know, for one of these panels, you know, the Barry students cheered and he was really just someone that very obviously the students adored, you know, just had so much affection for him and so much respect, obviously, for his teaching and his wisdom and and so from then on, I used to see him at conferences fairly often, you know, the American Political Science Association annual conference. We'd find time to go out to dinner with a crew, P and Mahoney and some other people. And I started to see him less, I would say, after 2010, you know, I had two kids and wasn't able to get to those conferences as much. But by then we started communicating over email pretty regularly. And he was kind of constantly interested in what I was doing and what I was working on. He played a huge role in my first edited book called The Great Lie. 
It was this anthology of the greatest anti-totalitarian writings from the 20th century that I pitched to ISI books. And Peter was a big cheerleader and someone that ISI looked to to sort of figure out whether or not this was a project that was worth their while. And I think due to Peter's confidence in me, they went ahead with the project. And he was also crucial in shaping the table of contents. The sixth part of that book is called Lessons. And so it's reflections by more contemporary thinkers like Pierre Menant and others about the legacy of anti-totalitarian writing. And, you know, Peter had a hand in kind of shaping that section of the book. And he promoted that book on his blog. And I think he used it in his own teaching. And so his vote of confidence gave me confidence sort of as a younger academic that I was doing something worthwhile. So I'll, I'll always be grateful to him for that, for sure. Yes, it does seem Peter had a knack for choosing young people who seemed promising and helping out in various practical ways. More and more talking with people, I hear these stories that they were actually young, even undergrads whom Peter met and easily steered into a very interesting career and he could read people unusually well. It's one of the things that makes us think of Peter as Socratic. He could read people fairly well and think, what is this young man capable of? What should he be encouraged towards or away from, for that matter? How is it that he could do better? And in that way, make himself useful in a way. Right. Peter was very practical. He was indeed always concerned with the essays and the books and the conferences and the things that aren't just a career. They're also, what are you going to offer other people? Whether it is your readers or your students or anybody else. And somehow this led to the assembly of the team that I joined in his late years at National Review, the postmodern conservative team. We're renegades as academia goes, not to say that you are not fully respectable, but truth be told, academia in America is not really all that devoted to your specialty in totalitarianism. It is a dissenting voice, in a sense, to remind people that horror swept the 20th century that the world ended several times for many, many peoples, and the price paid was really unimaginable to decent people. So with everyone who was involved with postmodern conservative was in some way an outsider or dissenter from what was consensus in American publishing and in academia, and Peter seemed to have had a soft spot for us for that reason. He realized that we were saying something that not everybody was already saying. He wasn't looking to recruit a popular team. He wasn't really willing to abet the things that everybody was already saying anyway. He was looking for important things that aren't being said a lot. And I think that is partly because of his own studies, of his own work as a teacher. He was always looking for authors to include in his thinking and in his teaching that people should pay much more attention to than they are willing or inclined. That, of course, describes totalitarianism, but it also describes Tocqueville, an author widely ignored, both in France and in America, whose reputation really was revived in recent generations. We think of Tocqueville as the great genius on democracy and on America, which is true. And yet it was not the case that people paid that much attention to him up until, say, two generations back. That said, we are not Tocqueville. We are trying to do, in a small way, a Tocquevillian work in American public discourse. Postmodern conservative was Peter's attempt to influence the public discourse, bring people an awareness that everything from popular culture to high literature to history and political events could be dealt with with some of the great resources of the liberal arts. Peter was a big believer that the liberal arts in some sense are for everybody. 
everyone in America has some spare time, has some leisure, could hit upon some reading or some show or some movie or some book and be inspired by it to think more seriously about what it means to be American and what it means to be human as such. And this was the mission of postmodern conservative. It is postmodern in as much as it admits that modern ideals of progress have failed. And it is conservative in as much as it says that many, many things from our past, even our ancient past, are very necessary to us as better guides, as completion at any rate for the things that we do not ordinarily take very seriously. These seem to have been the guiding ideas of postmodern conservatism as he organized it and ran it over the years, and it made for a unique voice in American public discourse. Somehow Peter managed to put this together and he thought that we also had a duty in a strange way that Americans deserve to be told more serious things and more intelligent things. He disliked people who were snobs, not just because they didn't take seriously what Americans take seriously, but also because they didn't do their public service. The foundation here and everything else we do by way of publishing is some small but real proof that talking intelligently with an academic education in the liberal arts is something that Americans are looking forward to, that they are willing to embrace and support, and perhaps above everything else that much more of it is needed than we think. Peter was an early adopter of blogging and an enthusiastic practitioner, indeed a teacher by example in this regard. And I think that's because he realized that many institutional solutions to the problem of education in public discourse had failed and it was time to look for new ideas. He believed deeply in education, which is why he practiced it so much, and it was his primary activity. As you say, it's not just in class, it's also editing volumes, helping people get published at university presses. It's also at conferences and even the American Political Science Association. In every way, he was active in the professional domain to do the best for education, but he was also active outside of it, and you could say he hedged his bets. There's a great American nation out there that also might be a good audience. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, if you just think about the arc of his career, obviously, as a younger academic, he did things that you have to do to get tenure and to be a good soldier at your college or university. And I have no doubt that he served on various committees at Barry and probably was widely respected by people. So, I mean, I think he did the usual things that one does. But as you say, I think it's right. At some point, he decided that he wanted to speak to a broader audience and bring more people into contact with his own ideas through blogging. And so that's something that I really admired. And I decided at some point I wanted to do as well. I wasn't you know, interested in trying to write articles that would be published in peer-reviewed journals and you know, might be read by a handful of people. And maybe it would become influential if the right people cited it and found it worthy. I mean, I think Peter could do that and he did do that. But as you say, I also think he decided at some point that he really wanted to speak to a broader audience if you sort of look on the internet, uh, you can Google Peter Lawler lectures or Peter Lawler Tocqueville, and there'll be different things that you find on the web. I mean, he had a really engaging style, and I'm sure it sort of shocks you at first because you're not sure if it's all tongue-in-cheek or how serious he is, but he manages to be provocative in the best sense. You know, he was not ever a provocateur. I don't think he ever said things for the purpose of getting a rise out of people, he provoked in order to get people to think. I was looking at one lecture that he gave in 2015 at Villanova on Tocqueville and individualism today, 
it's an amazing performance. I think he spoke for about 50 minutes, and it's a pretty compact interpretation of Tocqueville's concept of individualism, and he gives you kind of a concise and thoughtful reading of some of those chapters and discusses that in the context of the portrait of the democratic mind more broadly. And so at the beginning, you think, oh, this is a really interesting lecture on Tocqueville. And then as he starts to get going, he starts to talk about what individualism looks like in America today. And he says, you can tell a great book by the fact that it gets more true the further you get away from its publication date. And so suddenly, you know, you've been going slow and steady in the car and you think you're in a pretty conventional analytical lecture about Tocqueville. And then sort of you look up and all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, the obsession with health in America and gay marriage and biotechnology. And he's talking about Mad Men and Seinfeld and Interstellar and her. And you're just, holy cow, how do (laughs) how did he do that? I mean, I think there are other academics who try to bring the ideas of old philosophers to life in interesting ways, but I don't think anyone did it quite like Peter did with the attention to popular culture and this, I would say, this sort of acute social analysis, sort of keeping his ear to the ground for social trends, you know, depopulation. He read a lot of different literature that people trained as political philosophers don't usually pay attention to. So, you know, in that sense, he was a really singular figure. Yeah, I think you get to something very interesting here that it was precisely because Peter took very seriously, very rarely read books that sometimes it seems like it's actually a very small population in academia that is bred to read them. And he looked up from those readings and he thought a lot of America shows what's happening here. And at the same time that what people in America do shows their longings, their desires and their opinions in ways that are revealed by great authors from Plato to Tocqueville. He didn't despise either great writers or the American people. He thought that in a certain way they had something to say to each other. He didn't think that the point of reading old books is that nobody else does it and you're special. He thought that the point of it is that you'll understand what world you're living in. And at the same time, he believed for that reason that if you look at what people believe in, what they chase after, what they desperately want to see or hear, you will see the concerns that begin the investigations of philosophers. How is it that we find it so difficult to be human since it's the one thing we know for sure we are? How is it that we are even inclined to deny that we are human? And we will try anything from transhumanism or any other kind of abstract science to some kind of mysticism or cultism to deny our complicated and often contradictory impulses. He thought that America was a great experiment ongoing in whether it is that human beings can behave as both free individuals and relational beings. And he thought that we had recently veered in this dangerous direction of individualism. Indeed, Tocqueville was his great guide in this, and with Tocqueville was Pascal, and behind Pascal was Augustine. He had a great teaching from his Christian Catholic heritage, but he also thought this is obvious to anyone who just looks around at what people do, who just listens to his friends and to his family and takes to heart their turmoil. He took the American drama seriously because he knew that everybody really is going through it. It's not some kind of fantasy. It's not simply a matter of media hype. It's not simply a matter of entertainment. Our pop culture really and truly reflects who we are and what we're going through. It's messed up because we're messed up. And uh, therefore, he wasn't inclined to be very moralistic about public discourse. He was, first of all, trying to understand why are people so troubled? 
Yeah. That's why I think he also believed that he had something useful to contribute, that he could relate his erudition and his wide interests to the experiences of everyday people. He didn't think that everybody needed to have that same education or erudition first. He thought that they just needed the experience to experience the American drama. And then you could see why it is that we've gone so far in the direction of individualism. Why we need, we desperately long for some kind of relational community, some way to belong together that's true to our human nature. Yeah. Maybe I gave the impression a moment ago, too, talking about his lectures, and I invited him to give a lecture at Skidmore. My wife and I did in the early 2000s when he was still a member of the President's Bioethics Council. But he wasn't necessarily a skilled rhetorician. You know, he was not an impressive speaker in in the sense that, you know, was this perfectly articulated point by point, you know, rigorously analytical and, and beautiful construction of words. But somehow he just drew you in by showing you things in the world that were worth wondering about or that you should be shocked by, but you probably weren't. And it was amazing to me, too, looking at that lecture in Villanova, the things that he was able to say and kind of get away with. At one point in the lecture, he says, "Okay, men, quick poll, raise your hands. Who would rather have an actual girlfriend or just watch porn on the Internet in your room? (laughs) And he expected people to actually raise their hands, right? I mean, you're just like, did he really just do that at Villanova University? And then he took a question in the Q&A session. You know, there was a woman who was offended by something that Peter said about gay marriage. He had tried to make the argument that gay marriage was actually a working out of American individualism in the sense that marriage as an institution had become infused with this notion of choice with no deeper foundation. I think at some point he said, if you had said to the people who are trying to promote gay marriage, well, do you want the marriage that existed in the 40s and 50s when, you know, infidelity brought you immediate social censure and dismissal by, you know, your immediate community and divorce was very, very difficult and you usually had to have it in a church with some, you know, religious sanction. Do you want that? And he said, probably, you know, advocates would have been less excited about that prospect. And so he he sort of wanted to say, I'm not coming out for or against it, but I'm saying that gay marriage as it exists now is a kind of working out of these individualistic premises. And so he took this question from this woman who didn't really understand the deeper philosophic point, just was only getting that he was trying to argue against it. And I don't think he was able to convince her, but he was able to kind of take her question and respond to it, you know, in a way that was, I think, pretty charming and sort of coupled with the little anecdote I just said before about internet porn and things, you know, he just had this way about him where he could say these shocking things, but you knew it was in the service of genuine inquiry. That's why it's fun to read him, you know, in addition to listen to him, because he really just takes anything and everything as worth investigating from the standpoint of the philosophic background that might, you know, make any social phenomena possible. And so I was thinking in my own career, you know, I've been much more attuned to popular culture and certainly attuned to movies, partially as the result of Peter's example and and also explicit prodding. Peter Lawler and Paul Cantor, I think, are the two people who have really done more than anyone, you know, in terms of the conservative movement or conservative academics, certainly, to encourage us to kind of take high and low and, and middle all, all kinds of culture seriously on its own terms and learn what you can from movies and television. I mean, Peter always, both in the blog at Postmodern Conservatives, but also at conferences, he'd always be promoting something and then studies, 
So we were doing true grit studies for a while, dissident studies, Friday night light studies. He was always sort of nudging people into, look, you got to take this stuff seriously because there's a lot going on in these shows worth paying attention to. Yeah, I think that's right. That's one of the things that drew me to Peter early in a strangely personal way. I come from rigorous academic education, and that means you have to sit around with a book and with commentary and take it very seriously, and you are often tempted to forget that you're a human being or that the people you read are human beings. You are first of all tempted to abstract from all that and just consider the argument by itself as though it were not a human being speaking to another human being. Whereas Peter helped me a lot to go and see that it's people who have these concerns, and those concerns are there for a reason. But if you try, put yourself in somebody's shoes, if you try to say, why would somebody say this to you? If your first instinct is not, well, you're wrong, or, well, that's just obviously right, but you're asking yourself, why would somebody say this? Then you get to know a human being. It becomes more personal and not just abstract. And that drew me to him and confirmed to me that my own concerns for culture or poetry more broadly were not simply foolish or distractions, that they were tied up with this insight that we have to figure out what the relationship is between our lives and our opinions. Peter made a great effort, as you say, to remind academics that they do not live in a fantasy world, that however hard they pretend, they're actually Americans. Some people like Paul Cantor don't just know they're Americans, they revel in it. But that's also why Paul Cantor, another member of the American Cinema Foundation, a man for whose friendship I'm very grateful, wonderful to talk to, it's why he, for the longest time, was not taken so seriously, because he would remind people that our ideas are exampled in our culture, and our culture itself, in turn, calls forth ideas that will make sense of our experience. Why is it that we're doing these things? Are they right? Are they wrong? Are they likely to work? These concerns are not first and foremost for academics, and of course they don't need to be first and foremost for academics. First and foremost is to deal with learning and deal with students. But that gradually, as it develops, requires that you realize that your students come from America and that your ideas will have some relationship to American life. And you begin to be more prudent and more serious about helping people out and seeing where you stand to other people. And so Peter's concern with popular culture and higher education were very deeply connected. People are first and foremost Americans. They look at higher education as Americans, and on the other hand, they learn to look at America through the lens of higher education. And they had better learn that this is a real country with real people, not a playground for abstract ideas or for fantasies of transformation of humankind. He was gentle about this, he was not as brutal as I put it now, but that was what reassured me that this is a serious man in all he does, including when he is playful, and that's partly because he realizes a lot of life is funny. We're not all that serious or all that smart all the time. He was so ironic, and nevertheless people trusted him and even loved him. And I think that's because people realized it's not just that he meant no harm, but he knew what he was doing. You could trust him. Yeah, and I think it comes across in his writing... I've been trying to think about, maybe you have a sense of this, I'm not sure. Um, my suspicion is that his writing changed pretty significantly. I mean, I, there are certain continuities. You know, if you look at The Restless Mind, his Tocqueville book that was very widely respected by Tocqueville scholars. I know Harvey Mansfield thinks very highly of it. Certainly Dan Mahoney thinks very highly of it. It emphasizes Tocqueville's Pascalian, Rousseauian side. 
And it's also, I think, noteworthy in that he takes Tocqueville's minor work, The Souvenirs, very seriously and makes an effort to integrate that autobiographical work, you know, into the substance of the argument of democracy in America. So it's in that sense, it's pathbreaking, I think. It, it sort of showed you that you had to take the notion of restlessness and pantheism Subjects that are treated in a pretty compact way in volume two, you know, Peter argues that those chapters, in a sense, reveal the important core of Tocqueville's thought. And so he wrote that book, and I think it shows signs of Peter's particular style, but I don't think he quite found his full, I'm trying to communicate to everyone style until later in life. I think he got much more playful, much quirkier as Mark Henry emphasized, like to start sentences with so. He also is very fond of the phrase, more something than ever. Americans are becoming more something than ever, right? Just to try to push, you know, the social logic of this or that phenomenon. And so, you know, he's just really fun to read. So here, I'll give you four Lawler quotations. Maybe we can rank them. I'll start with my fourth favorite. So this is a very serious quotation, but it's very deep. It's from The Restless Mind, and it's on Tocqueville on greatness. So he says, Although greatness or human excellence eludes precise definition, Tocqueville shows it to be some combination of good judgment, openness to the truth, disinterestedness or personal integrity, an ability to comprehend human distinctions, elevation of the spirit or breadth of soul, political passion, courage, and a willingness and ability to take responsibility for the most weighty, primarily political matters. I love that because it's just, I'm going to give a shot at giving you a sense of what Tocqueville means by greatness in one sentence. You know, and here it is, and I'm not going to break every clause down and do 16 footnotes for everything. I'm just going to take a cut at it and tell you what I think. It's a great compact definition. Yeah, it's wonderful, precisely because it tells you, you should ask yourself, how do you rank item by item? First of all, you're just hit by all of it in one sentence. It can't but impress you. This is what it would be to be a great man. Greatness is the quality of a man. It's not abstract. But also, at the same time, do you yearn to embody this? He plays on this fact that we want to be better. The virtues matter because we want to embody them. I could be better. And here's something of a guide. Yeah. And that's something we dearly need. It's what we call looking for love in all the wrong places. But this is what guides Peter when he says, look at this celebrity, look at that movie, look at this cultural event, look at that politician. It's not just maybe they fail at something. It's also why do we Americans long for this? We are looking for this thing. We are looking for greatness. Yeah, that's good. All right, number three. This comes from a, an essay called Liberal Education as Respecting Who We Are. And it gets at Peter's, I think, general pedagogical technique. So he says, part of the Socratic method more than ever is to keep students from surrendering what they really know about who they are to those clever sophists. In this sense, classroom conversation is in part a polemic, even a shameless polemic against the sophist's two weapons, scientism, studies show, and relativism. That's only your opinion. So I love that because Peter is always trying to combat the studies show mentality and the that's only your opinion mentality. That's what genuine classroom conversation does is making students articulate their opinions, providing evidence for their opinions, but also making them say what they really think, say what they really believe and to convince them that what they say and, and believe matters and they should take the effort to make it matter to other people. And it doesn't matter if they have a quantitative study to you know back up their claim. 
It matters more whether it's, you know, rationally intelligible and moves their fellow classmates to agree or disagree with them. Yeah, I think that's right. We can all see greatness in great athletes, as Peter used to say, sports, the only meritocracy in America or in uh, great patriots. But we also want to experience greatness in whatever way we can for ourselves. And that tends to come through the great books. And the whole point of the classroom is that it asks of students, do you really and truly love this? And if you love it, would you speak up for it? Will you speak up for yourself, for your own longing for this thing? Greatness has to be in a certain way personal because it will lead people to say what they truly believe. They won't lie because it's a sophisticated thing to pretend that you're cynical, and they won't just say the thing that they believe they're expected to say for success and approval. Peter was a big believer in the power of great books. He said, this is human nature, for young people will at some point awaken to it. This is what I really and truly believe. The power of these books to elicit self-knowledge realize what are you truly looking for and the willingness to say that brings people out of themselves and it's the basis of all friendships it is shared love that made us all friends of peter and it is shared love that makes for all kinds of friendships peter just understood how connected books and higher education and friendship really and truly all are and how they come around in these moments to an expression that you can't deny because it's inside of you yeah all right so number two this is from an essay I think this essay title is one of the funniest essay titles ever, not just one of Peter's. And I think he was making fun of himself, his own tendency to draw super fine distinctions about political tendencies. So this is from an essay called Moderately Socially Conservative Darwinians. And I think Peter had to do that on purpose because he had to think, is this a category that really makes sense and does it really matter? I think he knew his tendency to draw these distinctions probably had to be reined in occasionally. Nonetheless, despite the title, the substance of the essay is fascinating. And so here's the quotation. Facing personal extinction, we may take comfort in the way we live on through our families, our friends, our countries, and our churches. Living on solely through one's species or genes, it would seem, is considerably less existentially comforting. (laughs) So Peter is a master of the ironic understatement, and I think that's a perfect example. Yeah, we know, uh, you know, a kind of radicalization of Rousseau that goes through Kant all the way to Marx, uh, to the point where Marx says human beings are special because we are a species being. And Peter would say, really? Who lives that way? Did Marx live that way? Does anybody live that way? You are the human being that you are. You experience yourself, as I experience myself, as an individual, but also in an aching way as a part of something bigger. And that is the tension of being human. I'm both an individual and to know that I'm an individual, I know that you know me, that you're my friend. I know that my wife knows me. She's my wife. I I, I depend on other people to know that I'm an individual. Which individual am I? Why do I matter as an individual? I matter because I matter to you. I matter to my wife. I matter to people whom I really and truly know and who really and truly know me in return. These concerns, family, friendship, country, that are real and practical because they involve what do I know, what can I do? These are all ways in which we gain evidence that we're good for something. These are all ways in which we therefore realize we are oriented toward the good, which is primarily the human good, what is good for us, what is good for other people. These are things we can rely on. They involve both knowledge and action. They make us human. That's why we can't really commit to the Darwinist idea that only the genes matter. Because the genes don't matter to me. 
as we can see, the only world in which Darwinism is a popular theory is the one world which won't reproduce. And so Darwinism has been refuted by the evidence. But Darwinism isn't entirely false. Certainly we do wish for our own propagation. We wish that there be more of ourselves in as much as we think that we are good. That it's good to be a human being and there should be more of us. To do what the Darwinists want, reproduction, the continuation of the genes, we have to do all the things that matter to us. To love and be loved, to trust and be trusted, to achieve all the things that make love and trust true. Yeah. And the last one, my favorite quotation, comes from one of my favorite Lawler essays, Communism Today. It's in the book Stuck with Virtue. And the essay is really great because it takes on this notion that you'll often hear from people, right, that communism is only bad in practice, but the theory is worth saving, right? And Peter, in that essay, takes Marx's hopes and claims from the German ideology seriously and says, well, what does Marx expect will happen at this final rosy stage? He points out, in fact, it's a hyper-libertarian dream world where you can sort of do anything you want at any moment. You can fish in the morning, you know, read philosophy in the afternoon, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no attachments. There's no longings. There's no duties. There's nothing behind any of the activities that one undertakes. It's all hobbies without any demands placed upon you. So there's no genuine love, and it would be a, a kind of horror show. Now, in that essay, Peter also goes on to show us there's some evidence for the idea that some of the ways in which America and the hyper-modern world today has some of the pathologies already at work in it. And so he talks about something I mentioned before, our obsession with health. A few pages, he kind of dilates on that and talks about why this obsession with health, although it's a good thing that people are living longer, the obsession with health makes death seem more accidental, right? Makes us more fearful of it and makes us seem like a big surprise. We can't live well with death because we're obsessed with health and we're on the treadmill all the time. And so he said in the future, this might be taken up by educators and you might get students who are graded in a quite rigorous way, not only on their minds, but on their bodies. And so he has this line and it jumped out at me because it's a very serious and demanding essay. And you're sort of going along and then you read this. He says in the BMI or the body mass index category, there would be no masking the student's true performance. And the school would have every right to demand that parents discipline their kids towards a more physically risk free life. The tough goal would be no child left with a big behind. <laughs> Oh, I just imagine him sitting at his computer saying, oh, I can't resist this. The editor is going to try to convince me to take this out, but I will die on this hill. I'm keeping No Child Left with a Big Behind in. So I don't know who at ISI Books had to edit that, but I'm sure they just shook their head and thought, there's no way I'm going to try to negotiate with them on this line. That's right. I'm glad that Peter won uh, so many of his disputes. He realized that Americans are too inclined to slogans. This one weird trick, this one TED talk is going to transform your life. And so he was always ironic about these statements and could find some fault with them. It, wasn't, uh, it was both funny and substantive that indeed you end up thinking maybe people are too obsessed with being happy and it's making them miserable. A friend of mine once told me that she jogged for years and years up until one day by accident, she saw her image in a car window as she was jogging by and realized that she was all a grimace of suffering and striving and she gave it up. 
thought this is not right. This is going too far. Uh, your body mass index, your obsession with looking attractive or fit is not enough to make you human. And it might, however, be enough to make you inhuman if you are too inclined to it. Peter was a big fan of sports that are done by people who like them. They revel, therefore, in their bodies, their natural strengths. But he was not a fan of the agony put into it, the desperate desire to prove that we're not mortal. Right. Because that only makes mortality come as a surprise. Mm-hmm. Fit people die. He loved to uh, make this joke about his two-point plan to save the entitlement programs in America, which I think he used on lots of occasions, but he certainly included it in the lecture at Villanova that I was talking about. He told the kids, you should take up smoking and remain. And then he, he added this, which I'd forgotten because I'd heard this anecdote before, but I'd forgot how he articulated it. He, he, he said something like, but you got to really stick with it, really remain committed to it. It's not just good enough to have like a few cigarettes a day or, you know, a couple times a week. You know, you have a full pack a day for like 20 years. And then he said, and you got to start having lots of babies right away in your early 20s. And that would be, you know, demonstrating your patriotism and saving America. And I'm sure the students in the audience at Villanova that day kind of looked at them like, I think he might be serious, but I'm not. I can't quite be sure if he's serious. At the end of the lecture, he said, you know, no, I, I'm not recommending that. But I don't know. There's something about him. He has got this twinkle in his eye where you're not quite sure how serious he is when he says these things. Yeah, I, of course, like it because I'm a smoker and I want kids. But even if you're not, I mean, you could see that uh, you cannot have the social programs we want unless there's going to be a next generation of productive workers to work for all the things we need in our retirement. And at the same time, we don't live so long that we consume all the money of the world in our retirement years. Them's the breaks. You can't have it all. You can be as healthy as you want. But if that means that people live a very long time, you have to face the fact that most of the health expenditure in America is for retirees. That's not easy to fund. We need more children. We need more productivity if we want this. But it also points out, you know, a lot of people enjoy smoking. It's not healthy, but is health or there is? Is that the only thing that makes you human? Yeah. That's the other thing, I guess, that jumps out at me about Peter that maybe we haven't mentioned. I've kind of mentioned this combination of deep philosophic learning and wide reading in the classic texts, you know, especially, obviously, Augustine Tocqueville, his favorite authors, but combine that with a kind of acute attention to social and political trends and realities. But he also, I'm going to say, I think this came from teaching at Barry, where I think he had to teach over the course of career, you know, not just all kinds of political theory, but I think he taught American government and the various classes in that sub-discipline of political science. And I think if you do that early in your career, it gives you this grounding and this wide base of knowledge where you can talk about public sector unions and you can talk about the entitlement crisis and you can talk about these institutions in a way that you would expect an expert in American politics be able to talk, but, you know, Peter could really do it all. So in, in that sense, he was the very opposite of, you know, what has become now a kind of cliche about academics is that they're hyper-specialized, and that's mostly true, I think, but it certainly wasn't true about Peter. Yeah, you're right. He took his patriotism with a healthy slice of academia, and he thought academia should offer you some knowledge and some reflection on all the things you cannot have an experience of. The past, obviously, you weren't there, but this is a great nation, 300 plus million people. You can't see them all. You can't see all these places. You have to learn somehow what is happening in America. If you're going to be a political scientist, you had better know these things. 
If your work is nothing but study, since you don't have to go to the job nine to five, then you had better know the nation you're living in, in a way that the guy who does have to go to the nine to five can't know it. Because he is not just stuck with virtue to be helpful and productive and loving, but he also is stuck with his town, his job. And he doesn't take responsibility in this way regarding knowledge for what's happening everywhere. But if you're a scholar in political science, you should do that. You should have broader and deeper views. You could say that Peter lived up to what Tocqueville said, that he is trying to see further than partisans see. But in the same way, he's a political philosopher. He is a man who concerns himself with politics, with real people's lives and causes. So he was indeed very well prepared to reflect on these things in practical terms, just like as you said before, he was very concerned with theoretical things and took them very, very seriously. What does it mean to have communism? It turns out that communism is nothing but libertarianism. If you ask Marx, what is the fantasy here? It's being alone. You're just gonna do what's on your mind. You want to be a farmer, you want to be a fisherman, you want to be a critical critic, whatever you want to do. And so Peter pointed out, there is nothing common in communism. You are alone. You're no longer tied with anybody. If you have made the somewhat insane assumption that there's not going to be any need for real work, then everything, including work, including danger, just becomes a hobby. You have overcome the human condition. You're just actually a kind of a Greek god in Homer's stories. Fickle, careless, abstracted from reality. Yeah. This is what guided Peter that at the end of the day, Darwin, Locke, and Marx all say the same thing. They all point to partial truths, but they take them in a direction that leads to a craziness. That you are a self-sufficient individual, which turns out actually to mean you don't even know you're human anymore. But in fact, you have to look away from them to what you really and truly know makes you human. That other human beings love you and you can love them back. You're not just an abstraction of freedom, choosing and re-choosing and unchoosing, as there are never any consequences to choices. But in fact, figuring out that the choices you make end up defining you, tying you or severing you from other human beings. Peter talked about this, that he worried about, even feared, a liberal libertarian convergence where the people who claim you can have pro-choice on everything forever and the people who claim that there's always going to be therapy and social services to look after you through the federal government end up banding together and removing from you any experience that you are the person that you are with the people that you know that I don't know them because I don't know who you are. And the more you take yourself seriously as a human being, the more you have to reflect on that experience and therefore on the people in your life. Have you done well by them? Have they done well by you? That's what ends up defining you, not pretending that you can recycle endless identities with no consequences. You can't live in fantasies, you can only live with people. And therefore, something like communism can never be true. You will always desire to know other people. You will always have duties to your parents or your children or both. You will always be tied up with other human beings. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the other thing that you talked about with Yuval Levin that's worth mentioning, of course, is, you know, what he started writing about biotechnology. I'm not, I'm not sure when he first started doing that, but certainly in the early 2000s, he was doing it pretty frequently. And I think he made some significant contributions to helping us think about that. And I guess the sort of bumper sticker takeaway from some of his stuff, I think, is that the libertarian emphasis on the importance of choice can end up 
requiring, especially in the area of biotechnology and eugenics, a kind of coercion, right, to give people the genetic makeup where they can choose well. He thought you could get to a pretty coercive eugenic project or eugenic state based on libertarian premises. Something that seems paradoxical at first, but you know, you read his essay on technology and stuck with virtue and some of his contributions to the reports of the Bioethics Council. He's always intent upon showing you the connection between starting from kind of hyper-libertarian premises and ending up in a kind of statism that you wouldn't really have imagined unless you were really thinking through the premises initially. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. And indeed, Yuval, in our conversation, insisted on the importance that Christianity and therefore the person played in the thinking of Peter that you have to remember that each one is an individual who feels in some way responsible for his situation, and you have to defend that, because there's always a temptation to say, we'll develop some new kind of power through technology, and then you don't have to be a person anymore. You don't have to take maybe responsibility for the next generation, or for your own family, or for people you know in your town, your neighborhood, wherever you live. But then it gets more insidious from there. What if belief in productivity means you have to take all the drugs that will keep you productive? Forget about your depression or your misery. Be more productive. Be more excellent in work. And it doesn't matter if you're human or not. Peter pointed out, this would be a question. Do you have a right to your moods? Do you have a right to be moody? To say, I'm not happy with this. Or are your moods a defect that pharmacology or genetic engineering ultimately can fix so that you never have to ask yourself, who am I? And in fact, be reduced to being merely a kind of productive work that you will be rewarded for and have all sorts of pleasures by, but never be human anymore because you never have to worry about your individuality. Peter was not just saying, you can't trust Marx because whenever he says communism, he actually means hyper-individualism. You don't have anything in common with anybody else. He also said you can't trust the libertarians. You can't trust productivity capitalism. Because whenever they say you be you, what they really mean is you be productive in accordance with an impersonal technological process that ends up stealing your soul. Somehow, at the end of history, Locke and Marx meet. That was Peter's warning to us and his teaching. This is what we have to avoid. We have to realize we are tempted to do this, to say, well, I got my own choices. And then to experience that defined freedom as I better do what the boss says or expects or else I'm nothing. And a lot of the opposition to that from Peter meant saying you should have something of the liberal arts, something of higher education. All Americans must work, but all Americans also have some leisure that leisure we often experience through popular culture, and it's sometimes enlightening, but it's often deceiving. And we had better think about it in more rational terms, in more humane terms, above all, to learn from previous generations, from previous centuries, what it means to be civilized, what the longings of the human heart are, so that we do not succumb to personal choices and universal pharmacological mood control yeah. so that we turn out to be productive slaves of our own desires. Yeah. I guess the other point I wanted to make about Peter is this concept that you've 
thrown out there with a few of the people you've interviewed, selective nostalgia, right? I mean, a lot of the things that Peter discussed and the social trends that he identified, one might expect him to be what you might think of as a kind of conventional paleo-conservative, right? Kind of Wendell Berry, you know, the modern capitalist West is all terrible and we need to go back to kind of organic communities and localism, you know, run down the list, I guess this would be the kind of thinking associated with Front Porch Republic or the people that Peter referred to as the porchers, tongue in cheek. And it's sort of interesting that, you know, he sort of saw some of the trends that they identified, but I don't think he could ever embrace fully their analysis of the present or their project in terms of solutions, in part because Peter was respectful of the idea that genuine progress had been made. And some of these, you know, communities, you know, of the past where a working family in Pittsburgh could have a good living with the father working in a steel mill, the mother didn't have to work and lived in an organic community. There was a, a sort of central church and, you know, a local bar. And in a sense, it was this vibrant communal existence. I mean, I think Peter was also open to the idea that that reality was in part pretty repressive or oppressive, maybe is better, you know, that working in a steel mill for 30, 40 years of your life doesn't result in great health and you probably die pretty young. And therefore, technological progress that would enable us not to be reliant on steel mills was probably a good thing. And enabling the children of those families to uh, decide whether or not they wanted to live in those communities or find their way in America in some other place was also probably a good thing. And women entering the workforce was a good thing, you know. And so I think, as you suggested, Peter was nostalgic for some things, but was prudently selective. And I guess he departed from the conservative line in lots of ways by openly embracing the idea that, you know, the present really is better than the past in lots of significant ways. You bring up a very important point here. It was from Yuval Levin that Peter took up this phrase, selective nostalgia, although intended as criticism. Peter, in his ironic way, pointed out that there is actually a lot to be said for selective nostalgia. It does remind us of good things we have lost. He meant specifically, of course, that we used to be far more relational, far more organized, far more at home with each other. We didn't used to dislike each other as much as we do now. We didn't used to be so anxious about receiving a phone call, about seeing other people. But he was also committed to the idea that we have to deal with the powers that scientific progress, technical progress has afforded us. They are not disappearing. There is no way to look to a project where they're going away. Whatever kind of anti-modern project you might think of, in a certain way, communism is an anti-modern project that says we can go back to the primordial village. In a way, fascism is an anti-modern project, in a way that says you can certainly believe in your national belonging, in your blood. But these have turned out to be catastrophes, to say the least. And so Peter said, we had better make the best of the changes we have got. You could not have justified 100 or 200 years ago the fact that some people did backbreaking labor. Indeed, for conservatives especially, since what we want is to get the votes of men, we should remember that most of the people who die working have been and are men. Well, what happens if they don't die? We had better offer them something by way of a worthwhile life, or as they will self-destruct as the working class does with drugs. That is a failure of our modernity. It is not a failure primarily of technical progress. It is a failure of our society. We cannot offer men a life worth living, and they choose death. If you have millions of people over the last two decades who have decided that death is better than life in America, that is a severe judgment to pronounce on our progress. 
Yeah. We had better seat. These are the technical situations we are dealing with, and we had better offer men something better to do with their time. Peter was very much aware of the fact that we do not have some kind of overarching national project or some kind of serendipity to look upon to say, we'll go back to 1800. That is not the world we're living in. Yeah. So we had better be less fantastic, more realistic. What is it that we can learn by selective nostalgia? Why was it that in some ways life in the 50s was better? It's because people were more relational. They needed and helped each other more. We have to figure out ways to do that. Yeah, different means for sure, but uh, same ends in terms of the relational goods, concrete goods of life. Yeah, it strikes me one detail I forgot to mention at the beginning. So with the help of Peter and someone I haven't yet mentioned, a friend of Peter's named Jim Pontuso, who teaches at Hampton, Sydney, and wrote a book on Havel and Solzhenitsyn, so has some similar interest to Dan Mahoney and Peter. Peter, Dan, and Jim all launched me on this path to study totalitarianism and dissent and gave me that confidence that this was a path worth pursuing and that I, as a thinker, could contribute something significant. When I saw, I forget if someone had sent me an email or even if I saw it on Twitter, but when Peter died in May of 2017, I happened to be in Prague in a flat that I rented through Airbnb on Charles Square, right across, you know, a few blocks away from um, Botslav Benda's flat, where um, lots of the meetings of Charter 77 were held. And I had interviewed the Bendas and become friendly with Mrs. Bendava and some of the children and, you know, had gone on to publish this anthology of Benda's essays, which I don't think Peter had ever seen. I think he died before it came out, sadly. But I just remember being totally overcome with emotion sitting in that flat so close to the Bendas and thinking that, you know, my whole project on the dissidents and trying to understand why they did what they did and you know how their commitment to being persons manifested itself in this way that it did living under communism was in part due to Peter's confidence in me and his encouragement of my writing and so it was strangely fitting that I was sitting in this flat when I got the news about his death so it's great to have this conversation um, and I'm really happy and grateful that you've taken the time and it's been a lot of time since you've interviewed so many of the people who knew and worked with Peter but I'm really grateful to you for your commitment to you know making sure that his legacy is well known and that people understand the various aspects of his legacy but also you know get a sense in a very concrete visceral way for the people that Peter influenced both through his scholarship but also through his friendship and his mentorship as I said, I knew him for about 20 years, and besides the Nichols and some of my other teachers who I had in the classroom, and I've been lucky to have extraordinary teachers. Peter was just a huge, huge influence on me and enabled me to take advantage of opportunities by giving me the kind of confidence I might not have had, but just also pushing, allowing me to be pushed in directions in terms of research and scholarship that maybe if I hadn't met him, I might not have taken. Yeah, you're one of our wonderful scholars in dissident studies, as Peter would say. He thought that what is true of Vaslav Benda or Havel or anybody else in an extreme sense is true of the rest of us in a less obvious sense. Because it's not just that we're all stuck with certain problems that are modern problems. We all feel alone. And of course, months of lockdowns and this miserable crisis have brought it home to many, 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 many people. Nobody seems to be taking this time away from normal life to say that they just love the way things are for them. Instead, they feel quite miserable. 
that's another sign of the fact that Peter was right. We should learn from the dissidents. We, we should learn what it means to be alone and miserable because we are not relational beings and therefore that we deeply and truly desire to be relational beings, to be fully persons. And yeah, the books are there. Peter was a very prolific writer, but it's also those of us who knew him and love him. We have to remember him. And I've learned very much through these interviews from other people who knew him much longer than I did and who nevertheless had very similar experiences. What it means to be helped along by somebody who believes in you because he knows the practical thing that you're doing. It's not fantasy, it's not self-help rhetoric, and it's not therapy, it's practical concern. You want to publish an article, you want to study something, share your learning with others and learn from them in turn. Peter made that possible for all of us at Postmodern Conservative and our audience beyond the classroom or beyond academia. It's a rare attempt beyond the liberal arts to share the liberal arts, to show what it means to be concerned with being human and therefore all of the things that are involved in that humanity and to share them with an audience who is willing or even eager to learn but hasn't been guided yet or by circumstances has been prevented from achieving that for themselves. This is, in that sense, the utmost of Peter's generosity, and it's why I felt after his passing that all of us who were put together by him, who are friendships to him, should continue this project, and why we're doing Postmodern Conservative, and now this series on his thought, and his life, and his activity, and everything he did for us, and he encouraged us to do for everybody else. It is as easy as doing podcasts in a certain sense. In another sense, it's as difficult as dedicating decades of your life to a certain study. And somehow he managed to encourage us and to convince us to do this for the sake of other people as well. Put us all in touch and to tie us up with our audience. And that's no small thing. It's what we owe, Peter. Every time I talk to you, every time I talk to any one of our friends, somehow Peter is in the background. That's a sign. We're not really all that alone. We shouldn't be all that worried. We should do our best. And so every time I see you, every time I see any of our common friends, I'm reassured. That's something that I'm also grateful to Peter for. And I'm grateful for your friendship, for everybody else I've interviewed. It's a wonderful thing that we can offer other people. And other people, in turn, will be able to profit by it. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I I think that's true. Well, Flag, we've come to the end of a long conversation. These interviews about Peter with Peter's friends and collaborators and interlocutors have tended to run that way. There's much to reminisce about. Indeed, there's so much more that needs to be said. But our audience will have to go find the books. We'll have to go read Peter on any and all of these things and indeed listen to the few lectures that are available online. He was a very funny kind of guy. That's an important lesson that I think perhaps we have not learned enough. Yeah, yeah. Intellectual discourse is not often that witty, but Peter had a unique way of going from the most theoretical to the most practical statements and pointed out how much in us is ridiculous and that we can learn from it. Yeah, it strikes me that he, I wish he, I wish the podcast world had exploded earlier because I don't think he did a ton of podcasts. I know he did at least one with Richard Reinch at Law and Liberty on education, which is very much worth listening to. But yeah, I wish there were more of him on podcasts. Yeah, you're right. Peter was always in the advance of these sorts of things as he was with blogging, but podcasting hadn't quite taken off. He did some interviews or lectures that were recorded so you can hear his southern drawl and his peculiar mannerisms that were so funny. 
as people say, it was something thoughtful about the way he presented himself that is also worth learning from. It's not all one big accident. And now we have this series of the friends and collaborators of Peter in academia as well as in public life that show he had a wide influence and other people in turn can do likewise. Peter did not seek to be important, but he has been an inspiration to so many of us. That is what's important and perhaps many in turn will feel inspired as well. Yep. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about Peter and was really happy to do it. Thanks a lot, Flag. This has been our 17th podcast and I'm sure we'll do another movie podcast sometime soon. But it's good to take a break from our film studies to talk about our great friend Peter. Thanks a lot. Yep. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.